Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast brought to you by our great friends at MyBookie. And speaking of my bookie, we have some great news for you guys. I've been telling you for a week or two now that we've been trying to get my bookie to extend our promo deal through the college basketball season. Initially, it was just going to be for the first month of the college football season. Then we got them to do it for the rest of the football season. And over the past couple of weeks, we've been trying to get them to push it back just a little bit more through the college basketball season. So basically through March. And being the great people that they are, my bookie has agreed to extend our promo code all the way through college basketball season. That's all the way through the 1st of April. All you have to do is go to mybookie.ag and use that promo code UGA and you can still get that 50% bonus on your first deposit for all new users. So make sure, guys, mybookie is being generous enough to extend this offer. So take advantage of it while you can. But all right, you know who I am. I am your host, Tyler, and... Welcome to the 2024 offseason. We've got nine long, dark, college football-less months ahead of us, guys. Yeah, I know technically there's one more game to be played, but as far as the Georgia Bulldogs are concerned, we are in the offseason. So we got a long way to go. It's bleak looking out there into the distance, but we're going to get through this together, guys. We're going to get through this together, and games or no games... You know how we roll. College football is always at the forefront of our minds here at the Glory UJ Podcast, which means that, yeah, we're going to have your weekly football fix all off season long. We're going to help keep each other sane, right? Let's do this together. We got this. And as self-identified Georgia guys, and I guess also a Georgia gal with Charlie, we're going to sprinkle in some coverage of other Georgia sports. Obviously, again, football is going to be at the forefront of everything. That's never going to change. It's never going away. But we are Georgia people. I guess that's the way we should say it. We are Georgia people. I'm a Georgia guy. So I love all Georgia sports, all things Georgia. So during the football offseason, we're going to give a little bit of love to some of those other sports, basketball, baseball. You guys know we love tennis. I know that's not a mainstream sport, but we'll talk a little bit of tennis here and there. But again, obviously, we will be heavy 
on the College Football Talk. But altogether, we've got a ton of great content planned for you guys over the months to come. A lot of big plans are going to be rolling out here. So make sure to keep tuning in week after week because we're going to have you guys covered. But with all of the news, all the developments swirling around right now in the aftermath of the 2023 season, I thought the best way to kick off the offseason would be with a listener mailbag so we can talk about the things that you want us to talk about. And we'd already had a bunch of questions sent in, which is kind of the impetus behind me wanting to do this mailbag episode because, hey, we got these questions. We want to make sure we answer them. But I went ahead and put out the call on social media last night on top of those questions. And, of course, the floodgates opened. So there is no way that I will be able to cover all of the questions that were sent in in this one episode. But that's a great problem to have. And what we're going to do is we're going to just simply break this into two parts. So this will be part one today. And for this episode, part one, I'm going to try to go with the more topical questions related to the news and developments happening right now. And we'll save the bigger picture questions for next week. I think Curtis is going to jump on with me early next week for that episode. And then we'll have our official 2023 season in review episode. We'll go back and do an episode where we're looking at everything that we got right and wrong with our 2023 college football preseason predictions. We always try to hold ourselves accountable, and that's always a fun episode to do. So we'll have Charlie on that for that one, and we might even have Charlie and Curtis on for that episode if we can make that work, but we'll definitely have that here in the next couple of weeks. We'll do our exit interviews that we do each and every offseason. I'm going to get some video content up and rolling for you guys again on YouTube. So a ton of great stuff coming here over the next couple of weeks and months. But let's go ahead and get into these mailbag questions because even though I'm breaking this into two episodes, I still have a ton to try to get through today. I'm going to try to make it through about 15 or so of these questions, try to put a dent in them a little bit. But we're going to start with a question from Lucas. And as you guys I'm sure at this point are all very well aware. Brock Bowers has declared for the NFL draft as expected. Like that's not a surprise to anyone. Lab McConkey, Amarius Mims, Javon Bullard, Kamari Lasseter. We knew Cedric Van Pran was already declaring. All these guys, pretty much as expected. I thought there was a chance maybe Ladd and Javon, those guys that were kind of somewhere on the fence a little bit there. I always felt, as we said here on the show, they were leaning towards going pro. And ultimately they did go pro, but those guys are all declaring for the NFL draft. And I'm going to miss each and every one of those guys. They were all damn good dogs. But Lucas has a question specifically about Brock Bowers declaring for the NFL draft and leaving the University of Georgia. So it's a great question. I appreciate it, man. Lucas asks, with Brock Bowers leaving Georgia as probably the greatest tight end in college football history and one of the best to ever play for Georgia, does he get a spot on your Georgia Mount Rushmore? And this is a hell of a way to start off the 2024 offseason because this is one of those quintessential offseason type topics. But with Bowers declaring for the NFL draft, it also has some timely relevance as well. And the idea of a Georgia Mount Rushmore is always really difficult for me because in reality, I have only been on this earth for 37 years, which means that I have only seen, I can't even say I've seen 37 years with the Georgia players because I wasn't conscious of what was going on in the college world when I was like three years old. I got to the point where I think I kind of knew what was going on with college football when I was around like 11 or 12. Because when I was younger, I was always playing football. My games are always on on Saturdays. Like that's when I was playing. So I couldn't really get to Athens for Georgia games. I mean, it's very rare I could actually get there when I was a real young kid. At that point in my life, I was a Larry Munson guy because I was listening to the games on the radio going to and from my games. 
And then maybe if my game got over early enough and I got home in time, the game started a little bit later, I could watch those games. But like the noon kickoff, some odd times the 3.30 games, tough for me to get to. So I would say it was probably when I was in high school that I started to really dig in in a hardcore way. And then college, obviously, they took it to an entirely different level. So in terms of like watching every single game, I didn't really start doing that probably until my freshman year of high school because my games were on Thursday nights or Friday nights at that point. So I could get to Athens for games. I could watch them all on Saturdays, just sitting there recovering from the game Friday night and just chill out on a Saturday and watch all the games. But that was when I was really able to start watching all the games, not just listen to them with Larry Munson. So I was, what, like 14, 15 at that point? So I've been intimately watching Georgia football games for a little bit more than 20 years. So that's my frame of reference. I know there's been so many incredible players in the history of Georgia football, but a lot of them I didn't actually get to watch. I mean, even like Chant Bailey. I saw a little bit of Chant Bailey, but I wasn't in high school at that point. A little bit of Heinz Ward, but I wasn't in high school. I remember the name Garrison Hurst like from the radio, but I don't really ever remember watching Garrison Hurst like on TV. I'm sure maybe I probably did at some point, but I was so young, I just don't recall that. I started high school in 2000. So basically the, the late, late, late Jim Donnan years to where we are now, that's my frame of reference. So that's how I'm going to approach this question. I know there's so many great players. Again, so many great players. And some of you who have been around for a little bit longer, you're going to say, oh my God, how can you leave this guy off? How can you leave that guy off? And I hear you, man. I totally hear you. I just don't feel like I'm qualified to throw a win like a Terry Hogue or a Bill Stanfield or something like that because I haven't seen those guys play. I know they're legend. I know their greatness, but I didn't watch them play. So this is my Georgia Mount Rushmore from basically, I guess, like the late 90s through modern day. Now saying all that, there is one player that is on my George Mount Rushmore that I never actually got to watch play. Never got to watch him. And that's obviously Herschel Walker. I feel like he has to be on every Georgia fan's Mount Rushmore. Even if you didn't watch the guy play, I feel like he's the one player. And there's so many other great players you could probably say the same thing about. I mean, Charlie Trippi is probably a guy you could maybe throw up there and say the same thing about. But that was just a totally different era of football. I would I say Herschel. The reason I have Herschel on there, even though I never actually watched him play like a live game, is because he is in a lot of ways responsible for putting Georgia on the national map. I'm not saying that we weren't a good program prior to Herschel Walker. We we were. We had won some SEC championships. We were a good football program. But we weren't seen on that national level. Even back then, I mean it was it was a very regionalized sport. But I think Herschel kind of put us on that national map. I mean, people got still talk about this guy as the greatest cultural player of all time. And I'm very jealous of everyone who got to watch him play. Of course, I've dove headfirst into a bunch of old like, clips from the vault and all that kind of stuff. So I've seen how great Herschel was. I just wasn't around when he was actually playing. But I think he's the one exception to this to this Mount Rushmore for me because he is that guy in the 80s winning that national championship in 1980, the first one since 1942. The first modern national championship, I guess if you want to call it modern at this point, being a program like Notre Dame to do it. And then obviously, you know, the next couple of years being right there on the cusp of winning more national championships and just barely falling short, winning the Heisman Trophy. He is one of those names. When you say Herschel Walker, any college football fan pretty much around the country is going to know who that guy is. So he's my one exception and he gets a spot on my Mount Rushmore, my Georgia Mount Rushmore. And then the next guy up, this is these the next two are really really modern and I, I I maybe it's recency bias I I guess you could argue that 
But we are in the glory years of Georgia football, guys. Like we are living it right now. So I think it's defensible to have two guys that have played at Georgia in the last two or three years on this Mount Rushmore. And again, my frame of reference, okay? So the next guy I have on here is Stetson Bennett. And look, we have had more talented quarterbacks at Georgia. I mean, inarguably, Matthew Stafford is a more physically gifted quarterback than Stetson Bennett could ever dream of being. Although, as we've said many times, you know, in the past, Stetson is far more talented and gifted than people want to give him credit for. But he's not on that level. That's not what I'm arguing here. It's the greatness of Stetson Bennett. How do you define greatness? That's one of those ambiguous terms can be different for different people. But when you factor in the adversity that that dude had to overcome his entire career in Athens, really. You know, obviously coming here as a walk-on, then transferring out, going to Jones Community College, and then getting a late scholarship offer to come back to Georgia after he was set to go to Louisiana Lafayette, comes to Athens, has to fight for the job, gets the job really by default, more or less, in that COVID-plagued 2020 season, and then promptly loses the job once JT Daniels gets healthy late in the season, is an afterthought going into 2021. Carson Beck, who we all love, and is, is awesome, was named publicly by Kirby Smart as the number two quarterback going into 2021. And then what happens? JT Daniels goes down. And who gets the start when JT gets hurt against Clemson? Not the guy that Kirby publicly named the number two quarterback. It's old trusty Stetson Bennett. And he probably throws five touchdown passes against UAB. And then JT's back and he gets benched again. Then JT gets hurt again. And then Stetson's back. And then Stetson's back to stay. He's back for good. And all the dude did is go and win two national championships, the first two in in 40 years. And all the while, there was a sizable segment of the Georgia fan base, especially in 2021, that was just waiting to pounce at any misstep to rip that kid to shreds. And we didn't win games in spite of him. This wasn't like a, a Craig Krenzel from Ohio State situation back in like the early 2000s. It's not what this was. We won, especially in 2022, we won games because of Stetson Bennett. That dude's clutch gene is unmatched in my time watching Georgia football. And then to cap it off, named a Heisman Trophy finalist. The first Georgia football player to be able to say that since Garrison Hurst in 1992, 30 years before that. So if this is my Georgia Mount Rushmore from my time as a Georgia football fan, Stetson Bennett's got to be on there. I mean, how could you leave this guy off? So I got Herschel, I got Stetson, and yes, Lucas, to answer your question specifically, I absolutely have Brock Bowers on the Georgia Mount Rushmore from my era. Absolutely. And sure, sit here and call it recency bias if you want to. That's fine. But guys, the man's greatness speaks for itself. We have had three three-time All-Americans in Georgia football history. Three of them. In the 120-year history of the Georgia football program, we've had three players that were three-time All-Americans, and Brock Bowers was one of those dudes. Not only that, he is the only tight end in college football history to win two Mackey Awards as the nation's best tight end. And oh yeah, along the way, just like Stetson Bennett, won two national titles. As a true freshman, was clearly, unequivocally, our go-to offensive weapon. I remember the Clemson game, guys. You guys do too. Is the very first in-person game where we had a full stadium in, what, two years, essentially? I guess about 18, 19 months? And right off the bat against Clemson in Charlotte, we're feeding this guy the football. And it's not just the numbers. I know he never actually put up 1,000 yards receiving, although this year he absolutely would have. I mean, he ended up missing, what, 
four games, really four and a half, because he went down the first half of the Vanderbilt game, still put up 714 yards on 56 receptions. So if he hadn't gotten hurt, no question in my mind, Brock Bowers was going to go for over 1,000 yards this year. Zero questions in my mind, which would have made him only the second player in Georgia history to ever go over 1,000 yards receiving in a single season. You can legitimately make an argument for Bowers as the greatest tight end, not just in George history. That That's indisputable. That, that is case closed. You can make an argument for Brock as the greatest tight end in all of college football history. The hardware would suggest that he is, clearly. But Brock's greatness goes beyond just the hardware. It's the way the guy did it. You know what I'm talking about? Like The way that he was able to produce running over and through people, fighting for every inch. Guys, we don't win a second national title without Brock Bowers going all levitation homes against Ohio State in the Peach Bowl. Is there another person on planet Earth that is capable of doing what he did or would have done it in that situation? No, I don't think so. I mean, like, name him. I don't know. But that's what I'm talking about. Like, the way that he did these things, fighting for every inch, putting his body on the line at all times, sacrificing for his team, coming back from a high ankle sprain, coming back from actual surgery, tightrope surgery, in unprecedented time, 26 days. Why? To come help his team. Brock Bowers didn't need to do that, guys. We all know that. He didn't need to do that. He could have said, all right, deuces, I'm out. I'm going to go prepare for the NFL draft. I put in my time, two national titles, maybe the greatest tight end in football history, and people would not have batted an eye. That's not how that dude is built. That dude wanted to come do it for Georgia, for his teammates, for his coaches, and he put his body online. Again, I'm telling you guys right now, take my word for it. After the SEC Championship game, this guy could not walk in the tunnels of Mercedes-Benz Stadium. But he was out there on the field. He won close to 100%, man. I don't even know if he was 70%. But he gave it everything he had. Not for himself. He did it for Georgia. He did it for his teammates. Did it for the coaching staff. Did it for you. Did it for me. That's who he did it for. So for all of those reasons, absolutely. Call it recency bias if you want to. I don't particularly care. Brad Bowers is definitely on my personal Georgia Mount Rushmore. And then the last spot here, this is the one I had the hardest time. Honestly, the first three are pretty straightforward for me. Herschel, Stetson, Brock, pretty easy. The fourth one, there are a couple of guys that I considered. The one player I had a really, really, really hard time leaving off this list is Nick Chubb. Because I love the kid, man. I love the guy. He's not a kid anymore. I love the guy. Still my favorite Georgia Bulldog of all time. Him and Brock probably tied for number one. But, I mean, it's neck and neck between Nick and Brock. Because I basically see them as almost the same guy. I mean, obviously, they're different people, but they are, they're built the same way. They're the same kind of person. Quiet. Just go to work. Don't talk trash. Just do whatever you have to do to help your team. Legendary work ethics. The speak softly but carry a big stick type guy. You know what I'm talking about? They're, they're built in largely the same way. And I love Nick Chubb, man. And like just the story of his knee. I mean, God, I mean, you go, I don't even want to relive what happened to his leg, man. That was crazy. It was right there in front of me in Neyland Stadium. That was just mm, disgusting. But him to be able to come back the way that he did, as fast as he did. No, he wasn't Nick Chubb that we knew before and after in 2016. But just coming back was crazy to me. I didn't expect that to happen. And then really what, to me, gives Nick a really strong argument to be on the list to be on my Mount Rushmore, is his decision to come back in 2017. Now, it's a little bit different for him because he was not a surefire first-round guy like Brock is. He was maybe a late first, early second, which ultimately ended up being a second-round pick. But him coming back, not just him, but Sony 
and Davin Bellamy, Lorenzo, all those guys choosing to come back for their senior year, for that final year in 2017, which kind of catapulted our program to where it is now. It jump-started us. Like without, without those guys coming back, I don't know if we are where we are right now. So I think that's why Nick has a really strong argument, at least for me, and it's hard for me to leave him off my list if it is my list. But the guy I'm actually going to go with here for my fourth slot on my Mount Rushmore is David Pollock. I'm going to go Pollock here, and here's why. And this is the one I think you can certainly debate. There's other guys that I, I could I could hear you out on, like Todd Gurley. Love Todd Gurley. I mean, if you're talking about pure talent, I mean, Gurley's got to be on there, but I think it's more than just pure talent. So I go back to what I said about Brock, right? There's been only three three-time All-Americans in Georgia's 120 years as a program. Herschel, Brock, and David Pollock. Now, Pollock, in my mind, is clearly the least talented of the, of the Herschel, Brock, Pollock trio of, of three-time All-Americans. I mean, that's fairly clear. But Pollock was plenty talented in his own right. But, I mean, how can you argue against that? Guys, I mean, three-time All-American, was Defensive Player of the Year in the SEC, won all those major awards. And let's not forget, I mean, I know it was a long time ago now, but this is early during my my time actually, like, being consciously aware of what's going on in Georgia football. I mean, I, I was, like, late high school, early college. So Pollock, I mean... You, you remember it, guys. I mean, he was that guy. Like, he was the superstar. He was like the larger-than-life figure in our program. He was the guy, if you said David Pollock, everyone around the country knew who that was and knew who he played for. I mean, this is the guy that still today holds the Georgia career sack record by a pretty large margin. 36 sacks for his career. Richard Tardis, number two. I remember when he broke Richard Tardis' record. He's got 29. In a single season, Pollock did hold that record for 10 years. He had 14 sacks in 2002. Jarvis Jones came and broke it in 2012 by half a sack with 14 and a half. And then, I mean, in, in his senior year in 2004, Chuck Bednarik Award winner, Lot Trophy, Lombardi Award winner. He was a two-time SEC Defensive Player of the Year in 02 and 04. The personal hardware is there. And if you're talking about a guy like Brock Bowers, like the way that he produced was just unique, man. Because again, Pollock was not the most physically gifted guy in the world, but he had an incomparable motor. The dude just outworked people. He was just insane. He was an animal out there playing football. And had some big time, like career defining plays, some iconic plays in Georgia's history, the interception, the end zone against South Carolina, obviously in Columbia. The only knock for me against Pollock being on this list is that he didn't win a national title. Got close, though, won our first SEC title in 20 years and was a major part, maybe the driving force behind rejuvenating our program, getting us back on the national map. You know, Herschel put us on the national map, in my opinion, and then Pollock and Green and all those guys in the early Rick years, especially in 2002, winning that SEC championship and just being a hair's breadth away from playing for a national title. God, Terrence, Terrence, they were so great, man. We so great, just... Still can't believe you dropped that pass in Florida. Crazy. So I've got David Paul. So that, that's my list, guys. That's my personal George Mount Rushmore from my era. I got Herschel, Stetson, Brock, and Pollock. But of course, let the debate again. It's one of those things. There's no really right or wrong answer. It's a totally opinion-based. So I would love to hear from you guys. What is your George Mount Rushmore? What does yours actually look like? Who did I leave off? Who did I get right? Who did I get wrong? Love to hear from you guys. So hit us up on Twitter at glory underscore UGA. You can also email us podcast gmail.com. Find us on Instagram, all that good stuff. But all right, guys, this is a great stopping point for our first break to remind you guys again about our great friends at my bookie. I know the college ball season is over. I'm heartbroken over that. But while it's not college football, I also love college basketball. I'm a huge college basketball guy. So for me, when the football season ends, 
I flip it over to college basketball. Now, I've been in on college basketball since it started back in mid-November, but now I'm going full force on the hoops front, and you guys can too. And also, while you're at it, put some money in your pocket with my bookie. The fine folks at my bookie have been gracious enough to allow us to extend our promo deal all the way through college basketball season, all the way through the final four. So that's early April. All you have to do, guys, to cash in on it is go to mybookie.ag, sign up for a brand new account, and use our promo code UGA, and you'll get a 50% bonus on your first deposit if you're a new user. So jump in on it now and bet anything, anytime, anywhere, only with my bookie. All right, guys, let's keep this train rolling along. We got a lot of questions to get to. We got to go a little faster with this. So let's go to our second question. This one comes from Jamie. Always appreciate it, buddy. Jamie asks, with all the movement with players coming and going, where are we at with the 85 scholarships? Are we over or under? Will there be any more movement? And this is a very astute question, Jamie, because a lot of people just talk about, hey, let's go get this guy and that guy. And, oh, my God, this guy left. The sky is falling. Well, we have to understand, guys, all this is happening within the context of having 85 scholarships to work with. So it's like Curtis and I said a couple weeks ago when everyone thought the sky was falling with all those guys in the transfer portal, what, 20 guys in the span of like a week and a half. That had to happen. Those players had to leave. Like We had to have guys leave to make room for this number one recruiting class that we have coming in and also to go out and get the guys in the portal to fill the needs that we have on this roster. And those guys had to leave because we only have 85 scholarships to work with. So you have to be very aware of this number and where we are as a roster at this point in time. And right now, we are very close. We're sitting at 86 right now by my calculations. So we are really right about where we need to be. There's always going to be more attrition, usually after spring practice, maybe right before fall camp. Sometimes it happens when the window for the, the portal opens in late May. But right now, we are in really, really good shape. Will there be more movement? Yeah, almost certainly. I don't know if there's anything imminent right now. There is one player that's gone back and forth over the past couple of days. We'll get to him in just a few minutes. We have a couple of questions about him. But outside of, of that player, I don't really know of anyone, at least that I've been told, that's imminent to leave the program right now. Now, guys, this is a crazy world. This is a new age of college football, and things can happen in the blink of an eye. There could be another school that calls up a player and says, hey, dude, like we've got this money earmarked for you, the NIL. Come on down. And that could happen, man. Our coaches can... Could, be completely caught off guard by that because sometimes it's too good of an offer to turn down. And don't think that's not happening, guys. This idea of tampering, quote unquote, it's not a real thing because there's really no rules against it right now. It would be tampering if there were like established rules against it, but there's really not. It's kind of this nebulous world that everybody's living in and operating in right now. And so you have really, guys, you have coaches from different programs calling up kids. And, and a lot of times it's not directly the kid, it's the, the mom, the dad, the, the cousin, the uncle, whoever. But they're getting in contact with all these people that can influence the player through back channels. And sometimes it's directly the player and say, hey, look, we have a place for you. We have this money. Here's what we can do for you. That's absolutely happening. But the time for all that, at least for the time being, is pretty much done. The portal window closes for teams not in the national championship tomorrow. So I don't think that there's going to be any more movement between now and then. Now, after spring practice, when guys have a chance to compete and kind of see where they stand on the depth chart, you'll likely see some more movement at that point because another portal window opens up and guys will jump in, they'll go different places, and we might go get some guys on our, of our own from the portal. That's probably going to happen. But right now, in the next, what, 24 hours or so, I don't think anything is imminent. All right, let's keep on going with the roster questions. Obviously, that's a, a big 
topic of conversation in the immediate aftermath of a college football season, at least in this day and age. So Justin asked, with all the bowl games but one over, are there any new names that recently entered the portal that you have your eye on and would love for Georgia to get. There's one guy right now at the top of my head here, Justin. I mean, I haven't looked through the entire transfer portal, but as far as I know and guys that I've heard recently that have entered the portal, the one name that I would at least kick the tires on and just, you know, put some feelers out there is a defensive lineman from Michigan State. His name is Tunmiz Adelaide. Probably butchering that name, but we're going to roll with it. I am not going to sit here and tell you that I have an intimate familiarity with him as a college football player, but I do remember his name from recruiting a couple years ago. Now, we were not really heavily involved with this guy, but I remember the name because he was part of that infamous 2021 Texas A&M recruiting class, right? The number one recruiting class in the history of all recruiting classes. He was not the highest rated guy in that class, but he was a borderline five-star kind of guy. He was top 40 nationally. He's number 39 nationally, actually, in the 247 composite. He's grown a lot from his days in high school. I mean, he was like 250 or so when he was in high school. Right now, he's about 290, at least according to Michigan State's website. I don't know if he's a true interior guy. He might be more of a five-tech body. That's kind of what he was coming out of high school. That was the thought of what he was going to grow into. But he's 6'4", 290 right now, so I think it's reasonable to think maybe he could add 10, 15 pounds and get to the point where he can function as an interior defensive lineman. But I still think the, the five tech might be his more natural position. And while that's not as pressing of a need for us, it's still a need to some degree because if we're going to move Michael Williams to Jack, and Michael's going to play some defensive end, but he's also going to get a lot of snaps at Jack next year. We're going to need some guys that can play that position. That body type is hard to find, guys. Guys that are, you know, 6'4", 6'5", about 270 to 285, but also really athletic, can set the edge, can rush a passer a little bit. Those body types are hard to find. And Michael Williams is kind of a, a prototype for that, as Trayvon Walker was. And I love Tyrion Ingram Dawkins. He's going to be a big factor for us in that position. He's one of the reasons why we feel comfortable being able to move Mike Williams over to Jack on a more consistent basis because we have a guy like Tyrion Ingram Dawkins, which we really didn't have for the majority of this season, not until the Florida game. Gabe Harris is going to play a lot at that position, and so is Joseph Jonah Jeanier, one of my favorite recruits in this current number one 2024 recruiting class. He is a prototype for that position as well. So it's not like we don't have some bodies there, but if you can get a guy that has this level of talent, he's interested, sure, absolutely, he makes your roster better. So I would at least give him a look and kind of put some feelers out there and see if there might be some mutual interest. But outside of that name, there's no one that I'm really pinpointing right now. Certainly, we'll reassess once we get to that portal window that opens following spring practice. We'll probably have some guys. We'll almost certainly have some guys from our program decide to hit the transfer portal. And we'll also thereby have a much clearer picture of what our roster needs are going to be heading into the 2024 season. So we'll probably be more active at that point. There'll be more names in the portal. But right now, there really aren't that many names that are all that appealing to me that are out there right now that we haven't already gotten on our commit list. All right, guys, let's get to the biggest question. I probably had more questions about this topic than any other single topic on today's mailbag. And that, of course, is the will he stay or will he go saga that is Julian Humphrey. Hayes Fawcett of On3 tweeted out a graphic, I think it was Tuesday night, I want to say, that announced Julio Humphrey was entering the transfer portal. Again, guys, Julio Humphrey, Julian Humphrey, same guy. Julio is just a nickname. And some people were taken aback by that because he kind of flirted with this earlier in the transfer portal window and he decided he was staying, he was there for ball practices and all seemed 
all nice and cozy and wonderful, right? Well then, wait, maybe not so fast. Now he's saying he's entering the transfer portal. What happened? So obviously with that being the most recent news, had a lot of questions about that over the past 24 hours or so. So Graham asked, I thought Humphreys was staying. What happened there? So this was last night. We got news earlier today that actually, no, surprise, fooled you. I'm staying after all. And let's just talk about the Julian Humphrey saga at large, guys. So here's the deal with this young man. Obviously, we landed him in the 2022 recruiting class. He was a pretty big pickup, a high-rated four-star guy. It looked like at one point we were the clear favorite for him. Then he kind of backed off a little bit. Then maybe he was training elsewhere. Then he got kind of back in the fold later on in the cycle. He redshirted his first year on campus. It makes sense, right? We had Keely Ringo and Kamari Laster locking things down. Those positions were essentially spoken for. So he said he learned and he understood that was probably going to be the case when he got to Athens. Now he was expecting that he would then contend for and win a starting cornerback job after Keely Ringo left for the NFL. And when that did not immediately happen, he started to have some questions about his long-term future in Athens. I'm just going to tell you guys right now, this is nothing new with this show. I mean, I'm not saying he's a bad guy at all. It's not what I'm saying at all. The transfer portal, there's not, I mean, this, it, it is the day and age we live in. He, this is not a unique story. But after spring practice, when he didn't come out of the spring as like the guy opposite Kamari Lasseter at corner, he was strongly considering entering the transfer portal at that point. That just didn't really become public news. In fact, there were a number of guys at that position that were considering entering the transfer portal after spring practice. But fortunately, Julian decided to stick it out, stay through fall camp, through the season. It didn't go the way he wanted immediately early in the season, but as the season wore on, he got more and more reps. We all know what happened in that Missouri game when we really wanted to match up with Luther Bird in the slot. So we moved Kamari Laster in the slot, and, and Julian got a lot of snaps at cornerback in the game, and he played really, really well. And then he suffered the setback against Ole Miss. He goes out injured in that game. Is getting some reps in that game, just like he did the the previous week against Missouri. And then that created a situation where, I don't want to say he got passed on the depth chart, but it created opportunities for other players, younger players, who he felt that he was ahead of and should be ahead of. They got more opportunities to develop and grow. A guy like Daniel Harris, for instance. And so, Julian, I'm not going to say that he was like a malcontent. That's not what I'm saying. This guy, like most players that want to come to Georgia, they may come to Georgia for a reason. They want to win, but also they want to get developed for the NFL. They want that big payday. He has his eyes on the NFL. That's what he wants. And I, I totally respect that, and I get that. There's nothing wrong with that. So the way he was looking at it was like, okay, these guys might have jumped ahead of me a little bit while I was injured. Do I want to risk sticking it out and battling for the job and maybe not winning it and then be stuck here for another year and delay my NFL future for another year, delay that big payday for another year when I can just go ahead right now and go somewhere else that's going to give me a big NIL bag and also set me up to have a chance to go to the NFL a year earlier because I have a clearer path to a starting position. That is in a nutshell what is going on with this guy. Again, I don't want anyone out there to think this is a bad kid, he's a malcontent, he's a locker room problem. No, none of that is true. He just has certain goals and he considered the idea that maybe going somewhere else was a faster and more efficient way for him to accomplish those goals. Now, what our coaching staff did is as soon as he said he was entering the transfer portal, they hopped on a private jet and flew to his family's home in Texas, where he's from, and met with the entire family and clearly convinced him to stay. And then if you read some of the, uh, the the quotes from Julian himself, and I want to give credit where credit's due, I think this was on three where I saw this. I want to say it was Rusty Menzel potentially. He straight up said, I don't have the quotes verbatim here, but he straight up said, why take a little extra money now when I can stay here and get developed by the best 
for the NFL and I can get there next year and make even more money. That's essentially what he was saying. So that shows you exactly what I'm talking about. That's where this young man's mind is. And our coaches clearly helped him understand that we are a top program. We have a history of putting guys in the first round of the NFL draft. I mean, look, we've got Kamari Lash that's probably going to go in the first round right now. We love your talent. We think you're one of those guys that can be a first round draft pick. And we think we are the best equipped to help you accomplish all of your goals. That's more or less what the conversation was. And clearly, Julian and his family were very impressed with the fact that the coaches essentially immediately hopped on a private jet to come meet with him when they heard that he was transferring. And now all is good. He is a Georgia Bulldog, at least for now, and I hope for the rest of his collegiate career. So that is what happened there to answer your question, Graham. Now let's go to the next question. I have a couple questions here about the Georgia secondary at large. We'll go through these, and we'll take a break, and we'll wrap things up. But Joey asks, who is the next lockdown corner at Georgia? Well, I certainly think Julian Humphrey has a chance to be that guy. We said this really all year long, that Julian Humphrey was a better cover guy than Dalen Everett, at least from what we saw from those two guys last year. And that's not to say that Dalen can't cover. That that is certainly not true. Dalen absolutely improved as the season went on. I'm very excited about what he's going to do next year in his second full year as a starter. But if you're talking about pure cover skills, obviously it was a much smaller sample size with Julian Humphrey. But when he was out on the field, I saw him doing things more consistently than I saw from Dalen. I thought that he had better ball skills. I felt he was able to flip his hips a little bit better, get it in and out of the breaks a little bit more efficiently. So if you're talking about it from a cover standpoint, I think it might be Julian Humphrey. Now, the reason he wasn't on the field ahead of Dalen Everett is that he was not as physical on the perimeter in the run blocking game. And honestly, he just is not as good of a practice player. Let's just call it what it is. Dalen is a guy that goes out there and just works his tail off at practice. I'm not saying that Julian doesn't work hard. It's just his practice habits when he first got here weren't as good as some of the other guys. And that's been a work in progress, and he's certainly improved in that regard. He's a young guy. He's getting older. He's developing. He's maturing. All those things are happening. But that's a big part of why Dalen ever was ahead of him. He just did some of the things on the on the perimeter of the run game that Kirby demands corners do, and he just had better practice habits. So Julian's certainly got to be in that conversation, high up in that conversation. But I really like Daniel Harris, too, guys. Like That's the interesting part about this is, okay, yeah, Julian is coming back for now, but there is legit competition at that spot that Kamari Lasser is vacating. Daniel Harris, you guys saw him in the in the Orange Bowl, and I hadn't really seen much of him all year long. I had heard rave reviews about him behind the scenes, but hadn't really seen much of my own two eyes. But we got to see that there, guys. Yeah, he gave up that long pass, but as we said in the recap episode, I mean, you really almost could not have covered that any better. He was right there in phase. Even if he was making a play on the ball, the ball just happened to be dropped in a spot that was just out of reach of his fingertips, and it was a great throw, great catch, and, you know, sometimes that happens. But Daniel Harris's length is freaking crazy, man. And that's just something that no other cornerback on this roster right now has. Now, the other guy, Ellis Robinson, who, oh, by the way, just got named the MVP of the Under Armour All-American game, not just the game itself, but the entire week where they're going through practices and drills and all that, which, surprise, surprise, I told you guys, and he's the best player in the entire class, and I wasn't even remotely surprised that he was named the MVP of the All-American week. But I'm telling you guys, that dude is an early enrollee. He is going to come in, and he is going to be a legitimate threat to start right away. Now, I'm not going to project he's going to start because he is a young guy. He's got to learn the defense. He's certainly behind from a knowledge standpoint and understanding what our coaches expect. All of those things, he's got to get up to speed. There's a learning curve there. No matter how talented he is, there's a learning curve. But in terms of like pure physical skill set and ability to cover people, 
he might be the best of all of them long term. I just don't know if it's going to be this season. It very well could be. I'm not discounting the possibility. I'm just saying like, I, I don't know if it's going to be right now because I haven't seen the guy on the field. I've seen him on tape in high school. I've seen him at the Under Armour All-American game. I saw him with some of the drills, some of the videos you saw coming out of the practices and the drill work, but that's different from actually playing at the college level. But those three guys are going to be locked in a battle. And our coaches also really like Kyron Jones, Chris Pete. They like both those guys as well. I can't really speak much on them because I can just tell you what I've heard. I haven't seen them with my own two eyes. But I know our coaches like what they saw from them on the scout team behind the scenes this season as they grew and developed and just went to work. I also love DeMello Jones and Andre Evans. I mean, I think all three cornerbacks in this class are legit players. We are loaded at corner right now. There's no way we're going to keep all of them after spring practice, but right now we are freaking loaded at that position. In some ways, you can say, oh man, that's a problem. How are we going to find time to get all these guys snaps? Well, we're not going to. You're like, well, we're going to lose some of these guys? Yeah. In the transfer portal era, that's what's going to happen. We're not going to be able to keep all of them. But let's go back to the original question. Who's the next lockdown corner at Georgia? Man, if I had to say one right now, I guess I would say Julian Humphrey. I think Ellis Robinson is going to be that dude. I think he's going to be a lockdown corner, but I just don't know if it's going to be this year. But there's an interesting twist on this, and that brings me to our next question. In fact, this is a question, basically the same question we got from two different people. So Ben and Jack both asked basically the same question. They asked about early predictions for the 2024 secondary. Obviously, we know Javon Bullard is moving on. We know Kamari Lasher is moving on. We know that, at least for right now, Julian Humphrey is staying. we got a peek at Daniel Harris in the Orange Bowl. We know what we have in Dalen Everly. We know what, we, what he was this year. Have the uber-talented Ellis Robbins in the fourth coming in. The other cornerbacks in that class as well, DeMello Jones and Andre Evans, both highly talented guys in their own right. We have some freaking studs. So what is it actually all going to look like? And honestly, guys, I'm going to be real with you. I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of moving pieces here. We do a lot of cross-training in our secondary. And what our coaches are going to do is they're going to mix and match and try to figure out what is the best combination here. Because we have some guys that can play star and safety. We have some guys that can play corner and star. Janelle Aguero, for example, was our backup at star really all year. But he was also doing a little bit of cross-training at safety. And that's a guy in high school, he did play safety. So he certainly could be a contender to start at safety opposite Malachi Starks. But if you move him to safety, then what do you do with star? Well, this is something I mentioned last week. I would explore the possibility of moving Dalen Everett inside to star. I think of all the cornerbacks that we have on the team, he's the most well-equipped to handle that role in terms of handling the run fits. He's just the biggest, thickest, strongest corner that we have, especially against the run. So I think it's worth a look there, especially if you have more than one guy that you think right now are capable of starting. Like let's say you think, all right, well, we got Dalen. We know he can play outside at corner as he did this year, but we also have Julian Humphrey. We love this guy. He's a starting caliber player. Daniel Harris is a starting caliber player. What about Les Robinson? Maybe our coaches think that highly of him once he gets here on campus and goes through spring drills. So how do you create an opportunity for more of those guys to see the field. Well, I think moving Dalen Everett inside, or at least exploring that, could maybe help you out there and solve some of those issues, kind of resolve that logjam to some degree. Now, I really love Janelle Aguero. You guys heard me rave about this guy last offseason. I, I think the world of him, I think he is a highly, highly talented player. I think he's going to factor into our defense in some way, shape, or form next year. I really do. But is it at star? That's where he played this year. He was backing up Tyke Smith. But I believe, I know that Dalen Everett is a better cover guy. 
And if you think about the teams that we're playing, guys, that we have in our schedules, you're like Tennessee and how critical the slot receiver position is for them. Think about what we did against Missouri and Luther Burden, where we basically said, Tyke Smith, we love you, man, but cover ain't your thing. So we're going to move Kamari inside. We're going to take a lot of snaps away from you. Well, you might do some of the same things that some of those kind of teams with Janelle Aguero. I'm not saying he cannot cover, but that's not his strong suit. He's a bigger, more physical guy, almost like a, a box safety, more or less, is, is really kind of what he is. With really good athleticism, but he's more of like a, I, I'm going to defend against the run, and I am going to be a force in that regard. And I believe that he would be a better fit playing with everything in front of him, playing at safety. Obviously, you still have coverage responsibilities at safety, but it's not the same type of coverage responsibilities that you would have if you're playing star. So I kind of like him at safety, but then you have K.J. Bolden, the five-star true freshman coming in, and that guy absolutely is going to contend to play right away at safety with that spot open with Javon Bolden moving on. So he's going to factor in the conversation as well. Then you have the ever-loyal David Daniel. He's been around for so long and done some good things for us. Ja'Cory Thomas is a guy that's just quietly been growing and developing and getting better behind the scenes. Our coaches like him as well. So you see what I'm saying? There's just so many moving parts right now without having any practice reports to work off of, without seeing what the depth chart looks like going into spring practice. It's hard to say, but here's my projection. To answer the question, I'll give you guys my thoughts here. Right now, I would project Julian Humphrey to at least, let's say, open spring. I would project him to open spring as one of the starters at cornerback, I would project Dalen Everett to also open the spring at the other cornerback spot. Again, there might be some cross-training, and I wouldn't be shocked to see him get a look inside, but right now, if I'm, at, if I'm projecting, the safest bet is say he opens at corner. I would say Janelle Aguero at star. Obviously, Malachi Starks at safety. And the other safety, that's the one that's just, I don't know, man. That's open. It's not going to be K.J. Bolden right off the bat. I can tell you that. I would say the safest bet's probably David Daniel to open spring practice. Now, is it going to look that way when we get to week one against Clemson in Atlanta and Mercedes-Benz Stadium? No, probably not. Here's just my wild speculative prediction, which, you know, guys, this is we're talking nine months before it actually happens. So take it with very much with a grain of salt. I'm going to say Dan Everett moves inside. We've, we're going to have Julian Humphrey and Daniel Harris starting at cornerback. I think Janelle Aguero at safety and Malachi Starks at safety. That would be my like way too early prediction of what our safety, our secondary is going to look like at the beginning of next season. And it might very well be a situation where those battles haven't been fully won. Like you, you think about this year, Dalen won the job coming out of fall camp, but it, it was a tenuous hole in that position. Like Julian was getting some snaps early on as, as the season progressed, he got more and more snaps. So it'd be a situation like, well, maybe Daniel Harris or maybe Julian wins one of those jobs. And then you've got a guy like Ellis Robinson that's just right there neck and neck. So he's going to get some snaps to open the season as well. And it's just going to kind of play itself out early in the season with how these guys play in actual game situations. So it could be a situation like that. But that's how I would project it right now sitting here on January 3rd with like nine months to go. All right, one more question here on the secondary and we'll move on a little bit. Tucker asks, should we be concerned about the inexperience we will have in the defensive backfield? Honestly, Tucker, I'm not concerned because the talent is there. That's just the rule of college football, man. Like you're you're gonna have some turnover. Would I rather have a, a secondary full of veteran, experienced players? Of course, I would. Pretty much what we had this year, Sands, 
Dalen Everett, but the, the guys that are going to be playing for us this year that are I think are most likely to open the season for us in the secondary, yeah, they might be inexperienced, but they've been in the program for at least a year or two. So a guy like Julian Humphrey hasn't played a ton on the field for us, but this is his third year in the program. You look at a guy like Janelle Aguero, yeah, I mean, he hasn't really played much for us, certainly not really meaningful downs, but he was an early enrollee last year and has a full a full calendar year in our system. If Daniel Harris or Ellis Robinson wins one of those spots, yeah, I mean, there, there's some trepidation there that, that, at the reality that those guys haven't played a ton of football, but if they win those jobs, they've won those jobs for a reason. And if they don't perform the other in the field, well, we have enough depth, of really quality depth, to replace them very quickly if they're not getting the job done. So it really doesn't concern me all that much, especially when you have a guy like Malachi Starks back there as safety is going into his third year as a starter. And the talent is there, man. The talent is there. Of course, you love to have talent plus experience. We have some experience. We're going to have two starters coming back out of the five spots. And who knows? Like Maybe David Daniel is a surprise of the spring and he wins that job. That guy's been around for four years. Maybe it's not as much an experience as, as maybe it might seem like it's going to be right now. But really, to be honest with you, man, I'm really not all that concerned about it. Because I know what the talent is in that room. And when there's that much talent, the competition can be so fierce. Whoever emerges victorious from those battles is going to be a big-time player. All right, guys. With that, let's get to our last break. And we'll come back and wrap things up. I want to remind you guys again about our great friends at Alumni Hall. Guys, it's cold. This time of year, January, it is very, very cold. And I was rocking my Georgia Bomber jacket that I got from Alumni Hall a couple months ago that I hadn't really had a chance to wear but man, that thing has got me all bundled up and warm. It's beautiful, warm. It's one of those things. Has people ask, hey man, where'd you get that? And I always tell them, hey, Alumni Hall. So jackets, hoodies, whatever it is that you're in the market for, beanies, all you Falkley Challenge people like me, you know what I'm talking about this time of year. So stay warm this winter and, and do it in a stylish way by going to Alumni Hall and getting the latest, best Georgia cold weather gear because Alumni Hall is where the Bulldogs shop. All right, guys, we are far from done. We've got a number of questions left, so let's get to them. Next up, we have a question from Alexander. And these next, what, two or three questions here are about the Cottrell playoffs. Obviously, we were fraudulently not a part of the Cottrell playoff this year, but that doesn't mean there's not some interest among our listeners because we actually got quite a few questions. So I got three of them here. The first one from Alexander, who asked, what was the difference between our game plan in the SEC Championship game and Michigan's game plan in the Rose Bowl? And what made them more successful stopping the Alabama offense? I, to me, Alexander, it goes back to what Curtis and I were talking about on the recap episode of the SEC Championship game. We were far too conservative defensively to open that game. I know everyone wants to focus on the conservative approach offensively, which certainly was problematic. But defensively in the first half, it was just as much, if not more, problematic. I understand the thought process behind it. We did not want to give up the big plays to Alabama and really Jalen Milrow. So we didn't want to rush up the field, rush the passer too much and create those national rush lanes. We could take off and kill us. We didn't want to get you know too aggressive and give them one-on-one -on -one opportunities where he's going to be able to hit the vertical shot down the field, which really, that's what he excelled at this year. He was He's still not a great passer, but if you get the guy one-on-one -on -one coverage on the outside and he just throws a jump ball, his receiver goes up and gets it, he can hit that pass, right? And that's where he hurt some teams this year. So we clearly did not want to allow him to do what he excelled at this year. And I understand it, but here's the other part of Jalen Milrow. 
the guy is just not a polished quarterback right now. He's just simply not. He's an extraordinary athlete. I'm not saying that he can't throw the football. He's got a very good arm, but he doesn't process at a fast rate right now. And he has a tendency to get flustered and panic when he gets pressure, especially from the interior. And that final play in overtime against Michigan in the Rose Bowl is case in point. That was an RPO play, guys. Go back and rewatch that if you, if you have it on DVR. You can probably find the clip somewhere on social media, YouTube, whatever. That was an RPO. They had two receivers to the field. There were two Michigan defenders out there. They're playing zero coverage. There were no deep safeties. So they're well, on like the two, three yard line. So they had one defender covering each receiver, and you had the running back go in motion right before the snap, and he is the RPO receiver. And then Bama had a guard pulling. It was quarterback power. That was the run option to play. They were pulling the back, the front side guard, actually, and Milrow was supposed to follow him on the run read if that's what he got. Now, the guy he was keying, or should have been keying, was Mike Sanders still, who is the slot DB for Michigan. If Sanders still crashed, he was supposed to throw the ball out to, I think it was Jan Miller, the receiver, the running back, going out in motion there, and he would have walked in for a touchdown. If Sanders Stills went with a running back that was that was going in motion, then you run the quarterback power because you're running right where he's vacating, right? Right where he's vacating that space, going after Jan Miller, the running back, on the, the pass option, the RPO. But what happened was the snap was a little low. It wasn't the lowest snap I've seen. Obviously, they had some issues with all season with low snaps. But when the snap was low like that in that moment, Milrow just panicked and he just ran straight into the back of his center. He did not process what was happening fast enough. The dude just straight up panicked. And I know Nick Saban, I know what he said in his press conference. They called a quarterback draw. He's trying to protect his player. They did not call a quarterback draw. It was clearly an RPO. And even if Milrow wanted to abort the pass option, the pass option was there. He should have thrown the ball out and he would have, and Jan Miller would have walked into the end zone. Even if he wanted to abort that, and by the way, he still had time to turn around and throw that football. Think about what J.J. McCarthy did on that, that, that quarterback throwback where he, where he got the, the throwback and then threw the ball down the field and he got like lit up like as soon as he was th- throwing the football. He had to make that like one-handed turnaround catch. Well, he still had the presence of mind to, and didn't panic and threw the ball downfield and completed a big play for Michigan late in that game. In a similar situation, I know it wasn't the exact same play, but there was a, a poor snap to Milrow. And yeah, it was a poor snap. But the dude just absolutely panicked that moment. He didn't even follow. If he had followed the guard, even if he had not thrown the ball, which he should have, if he would have just followed the pulling guard and ran the actual quarterback power play that was called as, as the run part of the, of the RPO, he would have also himself walked in the end zone. But instead, he didn't do any of that. He just completely went nuts and ran straight behind the center and got stuffed. And I know that was more a function of, of, a, of a bad snap and not as much what Michigan did there, but they were affecting him all game because here's what I believe happened. Michigan saw what we did to Milrow in the second half of that game. In the SEC Championship game, they said, oh yeah, well, Georgia had a lot of success in the second half defending the Alabama offense and Jalen Milrow. They had like one legit drive in the second half. They scored a touchdown on when we cut, we cut to what, 20 to 17 at that point. But we had a lot of success in the second half defending him because we finally decided we we're going to light him up. We're going to bring the pressure. What happened in the first half is we were playing far too conservative. I'm not saying we didn't bring any pressure in the first half of that game. We did, just not near as much as we did in the second half. We waited way too long to make the realization that's what we needed to do to this guy. Because what we more or less allowed him to do too much of in the first half is we allowed him to sit back there in a clean pocket. And any quarterback, even if they aren't the most polished quarterback in the country, if they had that much time to work with and just sit back there in the pocket, somebody's going to get open. You can only cover receivers for so long. 
So we were not making him force the issue. And Michigan did that from the get-go. Well, they had six sacks in the game. I mean, guys, in the second half of the SEC championship game, we held Milrow to 57 yards passing, 5.1 yards per attempt. In the first half, though, he was much more effective, and they jumped out to a big enough lead that we could not crawl back. Well, Michigan did not allow that to happen. Therefore, Alabama had more success throwing the football against us than they did Michigan because we just allowed for a half. We more or less allowed Milrow to sit back there. I don't want to say unmolested, but we allowed him to sit back there far more comfortable than he should have been allowed to sit. Now, we actually defended the Alabama run game better than Michigan did. If you, I mean, if you look at the numbers, we limited Alabama to 114 yards rushing on 41 carries, 2.8 yards per rush. Against Michigan, Bama ran it 43 times for 172 yards, which was four yards a rush. They had way more negative yardage in terms of sacks in that game against Michigan than they did against us. And I mean, in total, we gave up, what, 306 total yards, and Michigan gave up 288. So we're talking about uh, less than 20-yard difference. And again, they gave up 172 yards rushing to 114 that we gave up. But we just allowed him to be too comfortable in that first half, and he was able to complete enough passes that allowed them to jump out to that lead, and Michigan just didn't allow them to do that in the first half. All right, next up, got another question here about the college playoffs. Gabe says, I know you weren't high on Washington coming to the playoffs and said that Georgia was clearly a better team. Did the Sugar Bowl change your mind on the Huskies? Good question, Gabe, but honestly, no. As far as I'm concerned, Washington is still very much who I thought Washington was. And let me explain this to you guys. So I think I've, I've mentioned a couple times on here. Actually, I know I have. I had two big preseason bets on Washington. I had one of them to win the Pac-12, which they did. I had another one on them to make the college playoff, which they did. I cashed big on those. Yay me. I would trade every single dollar for Georgia to have a chance to be in the college playoff, but it's not how these things work. The only reason I bring that up though is to illustrate the idea that I had a vested interest in watching Washington very closely this season. And I watched every single Washington game that was on television. I mean, basically every one that was done on the Pac-12 Network because I don't get the Pac-12 Network. I have YouTube TV. I don't get the Pac-12 Network, okay? So every game that was on linear television on ESPN or Fox, FS1, that Washington played, I watched and watched closely because I had a lot of money riding on them. If you guys remember last year, TCU was that. You know, a little bit different story. TCU had a losing record coming into 2022. Washington was what, like 9-3 and three last year the regular season? So they were a little bit of a different place but like Washington was my my team coming to the year in terms of like this is a team that I am pinpointing as a team that can make some noise I, TCU is that team for me going to 2022 so when we got to the national championship game I felt like I was very well equipped to give you guys a very detailed breakdown of that TCU team because I watched them extraordinarily closely throughout the season because I had a lot of money on them in the preseason Washington much the same thing I've watched them a ton this year and I'm telling you guys, that game they played against Texas on, what was it, Monday night? That was the best game they played all year. And that is basically the polar opposite of how they played the entire back half of the regular season. That is not the same Washington team that I saw play the last six games of the regular season, even the Pac-12 championship game. The reality is, during the season, Washington was a good to very good team, but at no point were they an elite team. I know their their overall record undefeated would tell you otherwise, but they never dominated teams like that, guys. In fact, there were multiple games where they miraculously got by the skin of their teeth. Like I'm telling you guys, like they got outgained by Stanford. They really shouldn't have won that game. They beat Arizona State, who won what three games this year? 
they beat them 15-7 without scoring an offensive touchdown. They got outgained by Washington State. Should have lost that game, guys. Like, I honestly, thinking back, I, I still am not sure how Washington State blew that game. They blew that game. Same thing with Oregon State. Oregon State outgained Washington. Oregon State straight up blew that game. And let me give you guys some numbers, all right? Washington was outgained five different times during the regular season. Five different times. Guys, that's almost 50% of their games. They played 12 regular season games. In five of them, they were outgained by their opponents. In their last seven games entering the college football playoff, they outgained their opponents by a total of 42 yards. 2,836 yards to 2,794. And let me read you who those teams were. Arizona State. Stanford, USC, a 7-5 USC team. Don't let the name confuse you. Utah, who was a shell of Utah this year. Oregon State was a good team. Washington State did not make a bowl. And then Oregon in the Pac-12 championship game. They outgained those teams by a combined 42 yards. Well, let's look at Georgia, all right? So if we're comparing Georgia and Washington, I, think, I kind of think that's what the question is getting to here. Do I still think that Georgia was better than Washington? Oh, God, yes. Not even freaking close, guys. Our last seven games, including the SEC Championship game against Alabama, we outgained our opponents by more than 1,000 yards, 32-65 to 22-19. And there were three top 10 teams in those games, Missouri, Ole Miss, and Alabama. And one of those games was in the most hostile environment that we played all season in Knoxville, Tennessee. On the season... Washington has outgained their opponents by a combined 981 yards, which is good. But 981 yards at this point, guys, at the end of the season, that is a, that's typically the, the, the statistical profile of a team that goes like eight and four, nine and three. I mean, for example, Tennessee this year, an eight and four football team in the SEC outgained their opponents by essentially 1,500 yards. Their yards margin was essentially 1,500 yards. Clemson, another eight and four team this year, they outgained their opponents by, again, essentially 1,500 yards. And Washington outgained their opponents by 981. And here's the, what's more, guys. 863 of those 981 yards they outgained their opponents by came in their first three games of the regular season. And you want to know who those teams were they were playing in those first three games? Boise State, Tulsa, and Michigan State. Only one of those teams made a bowl game this year. And in those three games, those three games accounted for 89% of the total yardage that they outgained their opponents by this year. What have we outgained our opponents by this season through 14 games, just like Washington's played 14 games? Oh yeah, 2,900 yards. We were literally, according to our yardage margin, about three times better than Washington was this year. We outgained our opponents by three times as many yards as Washington outgained theirs. Now, none of that matters because they're the ones that got in the playoff and they're the ones that are playing for national title and we're not, we're sitting at home. That's the reality of the situation. But if you're asking me who is the better team all year, unequivocally it was Georgia. The committee got it wrong. They clearly got it wrong. It's not even close. And tip of the cap to Washington. They, they played their best game in the biggest moment of the season. Absolutely. Tip of the cap to them. They played fantastic. Michael Penix played out of his mind. He was a different player, guys. I'm telling you, the back half of the season, Penix was never bad, but he wasn't especially good either. 
I mean, against Oregon State, he was 13-28 for 162, 46.4 completion percentage. Against USC, he was fine, 22-30 for 256, but, I mean, nothing more than solid in that game. Against Arizona State, 27-42, 275 through no touchdowns, two picks in that game. Washington State, 18-33, 204, 54% completion percentage. But give the guy credit. In the biggest moment, the biggest game in maybe the history of Washington football, he was at his best. I mean, 430 yards, dude. He just lit Texas up. But the question becomes, can Washington do that and play that way two weeks in a row? Because I'm telling you guys, I'm telling you, that was the exception. That is not close to how they played at any point the last month and a half of the season. Now, maybe Penix was banged up. I had some questions about that late in the season myself. Again, as a guy who had them to win the Pac-12 and get the college football playoff, I was like, man, I don't know if they're going to get there because this guy is just not playing this the at the level he was early in the year. Is he banged up? I don't know, but he didn't he didn't look banged up against Texas. So maybe that was part of it, getting Jalen McMillan back, the third receiver who they missed for most of the year. That certainly has helped things as well. But the reality is, guys, this team is still 98th nationally in total defense. 98th. They're a little bit better when it comes to yards per play. They're 68th nationally in yards per play allowed. And that was good enough to get by Texas. It was good enough to get by Texas. But to be entirely frank with you guys, Texas shouldn't have been either. They were not one of the four best teams, in my opinion. And not having Jonathan Brooks, who was one of the, if not the best running backs in the country all year, that certainly hurt Texas's offense. They still put up, what, 500 yards of offense against Washington. So all of that brings us to our next question about the college football playoff. And this comes from Carter, who was just simply asked, who you got in the national championship game? Look, I know I told you guys I had Texas and I felt confident about that against Washington. Again, tip of the cap to Washington because they played lights out in that game. Michael Penix played out of his mind. They played the best game they played, in my opinion, all year. That's coming from someone who's watched basically every game they've played this year. I just don't know if they can do that again. Is that a repeatable performance? It hasn't been throughout the season. It simply hasn't been. It's not out of the question that they can play like that again. Maybe they just got hot at the right time. That's happened plenty of times in the history of, of, of college sports. But that's not what I would bet on. That's not what I would put my money on. Now, my only concern here is that this is by far the best passing attack that Michigan has faced. So Michigan is number two nationally in pass defense. It's a very interesting matchup. Was Washington is first nationally in passing offense. And coming into this game, like Michigan, yes, their pass defense numbers are elite. They're getting like 150 yards through the air a game. But five of the offenses that they played this season were five of the bottom 11 passing offenses in the country. Talking about Rutgers, Minnesota, East Carolina, Iowa, and Nebraska. Now, I still think Michigan is really good defensively. I think they're really good against the pass. I just don't know if they are that good. If they're like 150 yards a game good. I think that's largely a function of who they've played. So it will be an interesting match against those three receivers and Michael Penix if Penix is playing at the level that he played against Texas. I mean, he was completely in control against Texas. Now, here's what Michael Penix will do sometimes, guys. He, didn't, he did not do this against Texas, but he will force the football. He will force it in tight windows and throw the ball in places that he shouldn't throw the football because he has a freaking cannon and he knows it. And with that cannon, the ball has a habit sometimes of sailing on him. He's not always an entirely accurate passer. In fact, a lot of times he's a highly inefficient passer. Now, he was very efficient against Texas. But again, coming from someone who watched him all year, he's not always that efficient. And one of the things that really helped them in that game was his mobility. So this is a guy that's had multiple knee injuries in his career. And they simply just did not run him hardly at all, all season long, in terms of like design QB run stuff. He was very, very hesitant to run the football, even like on scrambles. 
That was not the case against Texas. They were using, like, legit with design QB run stuff in critical moments. That clearly caught Texas off guard, kind of like it caught us off guard when C.J. Stroud started to run the football against us in the Peach Bowl last year because he didn't do that all year long. But against us in the biggest moment, like, hey, you want to pull out all the stops, and they pulled out those stops against us. Washington did the same thing with Penix against Texas. That caught Texas by surprise. You know what's not going to catch by surprise? Michigan, because they got that on tape now. And Texas has an awesome run defense. Like their interior defensive line is as good as there is in the country this year. And that's one of the reasons I felt they would win that game. I felt they would completely shut down the Washington run game, which they did. They held Washington under 50 yards rushing. But I mean, Penix just went wild on them. But Michigan simply has more difference makers on their defense. They have a better coordinator in Jesse Minter right now. And Michigan just simply has a level of athlete that Washington does not have. So I've got Michigan in this game. I would take them to cover what was four and a half last time I saw. That's who I would take in this game. I know I told you I would take Texas over Washington and that did not work out. But again, I just don't think Washington has that performance in them again. Maybe they do, but that would be the first time all year they've put together back-to-back performances of that caliber against teams of that caliber. I frankly think that Michigan will run the ball all over them. What I imagine Michigan will try to do is in some ways emulate the Oregon State game plan. Oregon State held the ball for like almost 38 minutes of the game against Washington. I mean, they completely controlled the football, dominated the game. The problem for Oregon State was they would move the ball up and down the field between the 20s, running the football down Washington's throat. But when they got inside the red zone, they stalled out a couple times and didn't cash in with touchdowns. At the end of the game, Washington was able to put together one drive to go and win the game. I think like 26, 22, like four points, something like that. But they had no business winning that game. And I imagine Michigan who is a far more souped-up version of what Oregon State is. There's a lot of similarities that between Michigan and, um, and Oregon State's offense. They both have two good running backs. They want to run the football, establish the run, physical ground game, work play action off that, have some an athletic quarterback that can involve in the run game itself. So I imagine Michigan is going to try to do a lot of the same things that Oregon State did against Washington. They're just going to do that with a much better caliber of athlete. And I believe that they will be able to capitalize on those red zone opportunities, punch the football in, and I think that they will win that game fairly comfortably with the obvious caveat being if Michael Penix goes wild again this being the the best passing offense that Michigan has faced bar none like not even close then all bets are off but I'm just not going to put my money on that happening two weeks in a row after watching this team all year long very closely all right a couple more to wrap things up here real quick guys Trey has a question this is just a fun question here Trey asks who's the more apoplectic and inconsolable fan base Florida State or Alabama? He says gumps, but just in case you don't know what that's referring to, that is Alabama. Uh, it's a good question, man. Right now, man. Uh, so my dad was um, out on work, someone on business, somewhere. He was driving through Alabama yesterday. So he was listening to local radio, and he called me and was just like filling me in all the things they were saying on local radio. And I just, I gotta say, man, I, I was, I was loving every second of that. But obviously, right now they are, they are, they are down bad. But. I don't, I don't think it can remotely compare to what Florida State is right now, guys. I mean, being left out of the playoffs, like that broke. Not just the team, not just not just the program, like the fan base is broken in pieces right now, guys. It's one thing when you're Alabama and you've got, what, like 48 national championships, about, uh, what, 7% of them are actually real, but you claim them anyway. Yeah, you're down bad right now. It sucks, it hurts, you're mad, you're annoyed. Really, it's more than anything, it's like, you feel like it's like, Someone has taken your birthright, like your birthright to win a national championship and you feel like someone's taken that from you. That's kind of what they're going through. Florida State is just straight up broken. They're the more inconsolable fan base, apoplectic right now. Because after the, what happened with, uh, with obviously Michigan beating Alabama, the Florida State fans went crazy all over. Even though they just got beat by 60 points. Like, see, we told you so. We told you they shouldn't have been in. 
So they're getting left out, then Alabama losing, so they feel like they got even more of an injustice done to them by Alabama getting in ahead of them. And then you lose by 60, by the largest margin in bowl history to Georgia when everyone's watching. It's got to be Florida State, right? It's got to be Florida State in that one. So I'm, I'm going to go with the Knowles there. And then finally, we do have one quick basketball question here from Shinobu. So I, I know you guys probably haven't been paying too much attention to Georgia basketball, but conference play opens on Saturday, and I am freaking pumped, guys. I wish this game was here in Athens, but it's not. It's in Columbia, Missouri. So Shinobu asks, how do you think Georgia will play versus Missouri Saturday. It's a big one since it's the SEC opener. Yeah, this is a big one, man. So if you guys have been following Georgia much, we're I plan on doing a full-on like mid-season recap to get you guys up to speed with where the Georgia basketball program is right now. I know some of you have been watching very close, but I know it's probably not all of you when you've been dialed in college football. But guys, we finished the non-conference portion of our schedule 10-3, and which is really good, guys. We played six Power 5 teams. Like for us, by our standards, that's really good. Played six Power 5 teams, won three of those games, three games against ACC opponents. We beat Georgia Tech at home, beat Wake Forest at home, and we won a miraculous game on the road late, last second shot against Florida State in a game that we were down big most of that game. We fought back and we came back and we won that that basketball game. So we're sitting in a really good spot right now. We need to get some quad one wins. We do not have any of those right now. We have a couple quad two wins, but we need to get some quad one wins, which if you guys are familiar with that, the new net rating stuff they have for a couple years, like it's quad one, two, three, fours based on your opponent and where you play them. But winning this game would be a great way to start off conference play and a really big win for this team. Missouri is not a great basketball team this year. They're not as good as they were last year in Dennis Gates' first year there in Columbia, but they're still a good basketball team. They're eight and five right now, but their schedule has been pretty tough. The, the teams they've lost to are pretty good basketball teams. They lost a the game to Illinois. They lost at Kansas by about 10 points. They lost to Seton Hall, who's a, a decent team, not a great team, decent team. They lost to Memphis. Memphis is actually a really good team. So Missouri has lost a couple games, but they've lost to good teams. The guy we have to take away in that game is Sean East. He's a guy that really didn't do much of anything for them last year. I mean, he was just a, a bit player. He averaged seven points a game last year. Dude's averaging 17.1 points per game right now as a senior. He's a smaller guy, but he just has a knack for scoring. He can shoot the ball. He can shoot the three. He can drive and get to the rim. He will disappear for stretches, but then he'll just explode for a, a bunch of points real fast. But I mean, this is a guy right now this season that's shooting lights out from three, man. Right now, he's shooting 56.8% from three. So you simply can't leave this guy open. That, But the good thing is our calling card through the non-conference league has been our defense. We have been a really good, especially like our perimeter defense, getting out there, defending the three-point line, running guys off the three-point line. That's what we're going to have to do. We cannot lose this guy. You have to know where he is at all times. So if he gets an open shot from three, more likely than not, I mean, 50% of the time, more than 50% of the time, he is going to drain that shot. But outside of East, they don't really have any other consistent scores. Nick Honors guy averages about 11 points a game. He's a transfer over from Clemson prior to last year. I mean, he's a little rotund dude, man. But um, he's a decent player, decent shooter from outside. But he doesn't really scare you all that much. Noah Carter is a, is a versatile player for them. Also averages about 11.5 points a game, 6.5 rebounds. He's 6'6", 235. So kind of like a, a wing player for them, more or less. But it's really Sean East. If we can at least slow down Sean East. We absolutely can win this game. Now, it's on the road. This is a game that was in Athens in Stegman Coliseum. I, I think we'd win this game. On the road, Missouri can be a tough place to play. They care about college basketball. Winning on the road in conference is very, very difficult, especially against a good team like Missouri. So we're going to have to play really well, but this is a game that we can get. 
I would attack them down low. They don't really have a ton of size. They have a 6'10 freshman who plays like 20 minutes a game, but he's basically non-productive. And then you have Noah Carter who plays power four for them. Dude's 6'6". Now they do have this dude named Connor Vanover, who I think has been in college like 48 years. He's 7'5", but he cannot move. He's a toothpick. He's 7'5", 230, guys. He is a freaking toothpick. He's all legs. Look, his legs are just going to fall apart. He just cannot run up and down the court. He's basically just wasted space there. Guy cannot move at all. But with Chiwa and even Deloach, if we get Deloach involved inside, I think that we can have some success down the post getting some easy scores. And we've had a lot of issues actually rebounding this year. It's been one of our problems, but this might be a game where that won't be as much of an issue because we just, honestly, we have more size than these guys. So I'm excited for this game. I think we have a legitimate shot to go on the road and steal one in the conference opener. That'd be a hell of a way to kick off conference play. But all right, guys, that's all I got for today. I went through as many of them as I possibly could. Curse and I will be back with part two of this mailbag next week. So we, we've got a bunch of questions already lined up, but we probably have room for a couple more. So if you have a question that you have not gotten in yet, feel free to send that in. Again, that's at glory underscore UGA on Twitter. You can email us at glorujpodcast at gmail.com. And you can also find us at glorujpodcast on Instagram. But thank you guys for being here. The offseason is here. It is long. It is dark. But keep coming back for more all offseason long, guys, and we will get through this together. But all right, I'm Tyler, and as always, go dogs. <laughs>